We thank you, Father, that you have birthed us by that precious blood. And we're here because of the great prayer of Jesus in John 17. Because of the sacrifice that he was willing to become on the cross. It's no matter how good or great or bad we think we are. All of us have our beginning in you. And you are the ultimate man. And you gave up your ultimate life for us who were not so ultimate. You traded your reality for ours so that we might know you. We are forever and eternal grateful, Father. For what reason have we become so valuable in your sight we never know but we rejoice in the fact that you love us so you sent your son and that is a thought that will take eternity to comprehend I appreciate you, Father. I need you this morning. We need you this morning. We need you every day. Open our ears, open our hearts. That these moments wouldn't be just moments, but they would be building blocks to bring forth the glory of the bride of Christ and the church of Jesus that facilitates your return. you come for a spotless bride so we thank you Father for the precious blood that makes us white as snow we bless you Abba we honor you we thank you we ask these things in faith believing that you will respond and reveal and refresh according to your word and your nature that we glorify you in all things Amen. Amen. Well, I would tell you to be seated, but you already are. So thank you guys for worship and being vulnerable, available, everyone of y'all. Um, so, so blessed by these guys. And we're missing quite a few people again this morning. We haven't all been here in a long time. It's been kind of crazy. It's like every time we we meet, there's a bunch of us missing. How are you guys? What's up, buddy? Ethan? Good to see you, man. If you're new here and you're a visitor or whatever, you're welcome. Um, we're glad you're here. Um, I like to believe we're not a normal church, but maybe what we're doing is normal to you, and if that's normal, that's awesome. But if it's not, then bear with us. Um, we're doing our best, and sometimes it's not good enough for some people, but that's okay. 
I'm not here to impress anyone. I'm here for him. Amen. So sometimes people get offended when you're not there to impress them. I don't understand that, but it happens. And I believe what I'm going to talk about this morning is from the Lord. It's been on my heart all week. And then I haven't spoke to my wife about what I was speaking on this morning. And, and um, she prayed it, I think, after the second song, pretty much my sermon. So I thought, well, there we go. That's confirmation. And it was a, it's a sermon this morning I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to preach because I know that this is going to rub most Christianity the opposite way. And I feel like anybody that's been involved in in serving the Lord for any length of time it might have a little bit of a trouble with this. Um, maybe not, we'll see. But I, I pray that you see the, the principle behind it, and I pray that you see what the Lord is doing and what he wants to do and how he's operating in our lives. Because I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in what he's done that we miss what he's doing. If you define what God is trying to bring you into by what he brought you out of, you're going to miss where he's taking you. I've always said that the greatest enemy to your new wineskin or your new wine is your old wineskin. And sometimes we create what others know as religion. What others know as religion is usually what you're comfortable with in your yesterday. And you don't see it as religion. You see it as your revelation, your testimony. However, where God's taking you, it's no longer as um, relevant in the season he's bringing you to. It was important for the time. You needed it, and you needed that to grow. You needed that to become what God wanted you to be. But there are times when he wants you to move beyond something. And moving beyond that something is very difficult for us when we've established a comfortable place. And when God starts to move us on, we kind of get sometimes irritable. That's just me, not you guys. Um, We become a little bit uh, hard to be around sometimes. Again, me, not you. So um, I want to help us understand the frame of reference that I believe God shows us in Scripture. How many of you guys know that what Jesus did and how he lived is the pattern for all mankind? Okay. The individual acts of God that he displays in Jesus Christ and in Scripture reveal the principles and the ways of God that he's trying to get us to see. So if we get caught up in the acts of God, then we miss the ways of God that he's trying to reveal. And he's more interested in us receiving and knowing his ways than his acts. We're more comfortable with knowing what he does instead of why he does it. Because what he does changes our circumstances. Why he does it changes our purpose. Are you, are you understand what I'm saying? And God's more in, intentional about our purpose than he is about fixing our circumstances. We're, we want a relationship with him where he just moves according to our prayer. And he wants a relationship uh, with us where we're moved by his uh, intention and his plan. Okay? Now, God will answer our prayers and, and, and do great acts for us. But there's a so that. When we miss the so that, we get involved in creating God to be um, something that just liberates us from our own chaos. Amen. And that's not a proper and pure relationship. Though he is a liberator, he's much more than that. And if we're incessantly focused on him continually liberating, we're going to miss the reason why we're liberated. See, for the children of Israel, it was a very, very powerful thing to be liberated from Egypt. But there was a reason. Right? 
The reason was so that you can worship. It says, let my people go so they may worship in the wilderness. There's a point to the exodus. There's a point to the freedom. There's a point to the redemption. There's a point to the, what God does. And I see most of modern Christian uh, Americanism being more focused around what God does and getting God to do something instead of the reason why he is going to do that something. Revival is an act of God. Okay? It's a good thing. We need it. Praise God. We need more revival. But do you realize revival is given for a purpose? To raise up people who are willing to go to the wilderness. Because a selfish church will not go to the wilderness. She just won't. She complains the entire time she's there, and her entire relationship with the Lord while she's there is about getting God to alleviate the wilderness suffering. Make my journey easier. When that's not the point. You with me? Okay, this is my... My preface to the sermon. I'm hoping you know, I'm, I'm trying to lay out principle here so you don't get offended when I get into the content. Okay. You know, it's hardly a week goes by where I don't hear of somebody who was offended or uh, at the church here in some way. And then, you know, every time somebody's offended, the first, usually the first thing they say out of their mouth is that, well, they're, they're just a cult. And uh, so I. I think it's interesting that those who are loyal to nothing question those who are loyal to something. Most people who are offended never give their lives to anything. They hop around from church to church until something's said that offends them and then they leave. How are you ever going to love people unless you stay long enough for them to exhibit something that is hard to love? Amen? Okay. When relationship leads to sacrifice, that's what I want to title this. Um, so God's idea was always family. And in, in the very beginning, and I've taught this, and I'm not going to go into that. I have a, about, I don't know how many messages on sonship, but I've re-preached them recently, so you can go to the website and re-listen to those if you don't know God's intention uh, and I try to outline that from Genesis to Revelation of what it means to be a son and how it sees itself in Scripture, uh, starting essentially in Genesis 15, working its way all the way into Gen- uh, Revelation 21, and how God uh, connects everything together. So his, his, his intention is family, into an interwoven connection, right, uh, of generations that span from the beginning of time with each part uniquely connected to each other to bring about a glorious end. Why is that important? Because if your relationship with Jesus simply revolves around you and you alone and your life alone, then you will, um, you will have a, an adverse reaction when God tries to bring a corporate expression. Because you think it's about you. In the kingdom of God, the individual parts sacrifice themselves for the greater whole. We see that in Jesus. And we see that in the rest of the heroes of the faith who, who walked a certain way before the Lord. And as they walked that way, they laid their lives down so that the generations coming after them would be able to carry on where they could not. When we miss that, we miss the intention of God. You with me? And so to miss the intention of God is to make God about the individuality of, 
of the, in, of the person and not about the corporate expression of his glory. See, God can never be properly glorified unless he's glorified through a family. Individuals can only bring about so much glory, but the corporate expression brings about a greater glory. Why? Because unity is harder to achieve than individuality. So God's intention is not just you and your relationship with Jesus, though that's the popular American expression. In fact, we've elevated that to such degrees that that we've perverted the gospel itself, that my personal relationship with Jesus trumps your part of the, of the body. And that's unhealthy because you only see things through the lens of your gift. And I know you're partial to yourself, but newsflash, everybody else is partial to themselves as well. Which means you only receive how you see things and the way you see them is, is, is only going to be able to take you as far as you can go yourself. Which means you've created a ceiling for yourself, not being part of something greater than yourself. It takes the, the gifts and the callings of the body of Jesus Christ to be able to grow the body of Jesus Christ. Just the same way um, the body heals itself in the physical sense, the body heals itself in a spiritual sense. So many people are walking around unhealed in the church of Jesus because they're not connected. Some other member, they're praying for God to heal them because they have this spooky spiritual sense of, of Christianity where God's going to do it all for me. And they, and they bypass the reality that in all of Scripture, God never moves unless he moves through a man or a woman. <laughs> but no, I want to get it from Jesus alone. Well, I'm sorry, Jesus alone will probably give it to you through someone else. Well, I don't like that. That's because you're arrogant. Oops. See, that's why people get offended. I should, you know. <laughs> See, arrogance has a problem receiving. See, modern Christian culture is, is an individual perspective. Your relationship with Jesus revolves around you and what you have going wrong in your life and what you have going wrong in your mind and what you have going wrong in your marriage and your finances. And if you're focused on that the entire week, you have nothing to give to anybody else. <laughs> I think part of the frustration of most Christians today is the fact that they have no communal context and they know there's something more and they're looking for it, but they don't realize it's, it's beyond themselves. It's outside of themselves. The problem when people have with community is it's messy. You, you can't control people. And so when they don't love you the way you want them to, you have to deal with that. It's easier just to maintain your own little personal space and go to your little mountain with God because then you, can only, you, know, you only have to deal with you. But there's a reason why Jesus chose 11 men and a few women to follow him because he needed... Do you realize how different those guys were from each other? You have a pacifist in one of them, a zealot in another. Do you think those guys got along? See, unity is not conformity. Unity is the ability to love in spite of the differences amongst us. You know how many churches I've seen split over the dumbest things? You know what I finally realized is that people who, who 
look for reasons to leave have never learned to love. Because their eyes are on what's wrong instead of who is, who is right. You know, it's real simple. We ate from a wrong, the wrong tree in the beginning and we're still doing it. We think modern ministry is about figuring out who was right and who was wrong, therefore we're justified if we can feel like we were right and they were wrong, and that gives us the avenue to leave. However, that's not Jesus. That's not what he does. He came down here, we were all wrong, he was right, and he still came and stayed with us and said, I'm Emmanuel, I'll always be with you. Right? Okay, so, you know, God is good. Well, the command is to love one another, not love yourself. You already love yourself, probably a little too much. The command is to love one another. How are you going to do that if you're not around people? More than once a week. See, church is convenient the way we have it set up today. We smile, put on our masks, come shake hands, pat each other on the back, call each other brother and sister, done. Monday through Saturday is mine. I give you the 45 minutes I, I give you on Sunday, and that's community. It's not community. That's a country club with free admission, unless you tithe, which most don't, but that's between them and the Lord. So, so what, what good is a personal relationship with Jesus if it doesn't affect the whole? What good is your personal revelation unless it affects the body? It's pointless. The only thing you've, you've accomplished is that you're now comfortable in your own skin. Congratulations. Now what? See, God's always intended a corporate, uh, a corporate relationship. One nation, one tribe, one tongue, one family, right? Wishing that the corporate relationship would be represented by individual uniqueness. That's God's intention. See, a good father cares about his entire family. My kids, you know, and everybody's been parents before. This is not a, a story you're not familiar with. At some point, if you have more than one child, at some point, if they're, especially if they're, they're closer together in age, they're going to bring, they're going to sit down and color some pictures, and they're going to be like, which one do you like the most, Dad? See, what they're trying to do is say, you know, pick me over them. And how many parents in here, through your ancient gray-haired wisdom, have said, I like them both equally? Anybody ever done that? Why? Because you love them both equally. And you're not going to elevate one over the corporate whole. Why? Because the family is more important than the individual elements. But in church, it's not that way, is it? God, they were wrong and they shouldn't have said that to me. And that pastor, he was so rude and arrogant and mean. God, choose my coloring picture over his.
And you know that in the natural sense, the one that's older is probably going to have a better picture, but it doesn't mean it touches the father's heart any deeper. <laughs> and if you're comparing your picture to somebody else because you're a little farther down the road, it just shows your immaturity, not your revelation. In fact, the Bible speaks to the exact opposite, that we should celebrate those who are least in the church. That we should take that coloring mess that they have that's completely just chaotic, but it's the best they have and celebrate it and say, see what they've done. You have equal placement on my refrigerator. See, there's a certain degree of spiritual frustration that comes from not knowing the ways of God in our lives. Some of you guys aren't frustrated because the enemy's attacking you or, or things are going wrong. You're frustrated because there's, there's not this advancement the way you want to see it have happen in your life, and that advancement's not going to happen unless you get into a collective hole. And if we substitute these things we want God to do for the why in what he wants to do it, we're going to create our own chaos. We're going to create confusion because we're confused when he doesn't do it the way we want him to do it. So here's the, here's the kicker where I'm going to turn the sermon a little bit. When your expectation clashes with God's ways, something's going to break and it won't be him. When the acts of God that you're praying for don't happen the way you want them to, because he's got a greater purpose, he does that to see if you're going to be offended at how he works. Let me just say it this way. There are times in your life where God will intentionally disappoint you just to see how you respond. There's times when my children expect certain things and I say no just to see their attitudes towards it. And if they respond with a good attitude, then they get blessed. And if they don't, then they don't get what they wanted. See, we get comfortable knowing him where we are. I want you to hear this, please. We get comfortable with knowing him where we are instead of where he is. And then we try to build the kingdom of God based upon where we are instead of where he is. When the entire time he's trying to get us from where we are to where he is. When we attempt to move, when, when, when he attempts to move in us or move us to him, he has to move us beyond what we know of him and where we are in him. And he often sacrifices what we've had with him in order to gain what he longs for us to have in the future. When he takes your former revelation and puts it on the cross and kills it, you're going to be disappointed. Tell me those disciples weren't disappointed when they lost absolutely everything. Yet in Jesus' mind, it was better for him to go away than to stay. And in their mind, it was better for him to stay than go away. See, what God has planned for us is greater than what we see that we need. 
And when we look at only what we're afraid to lose, we're not seeing what he's willing to give because we don't know his ways. We're, we're only associated with his acts. We only see what he's taking away. We don't see what he's giving because we don't see the plan. If you and I look at our life as just this individual string of events that's just randomly happening, we're trying to get God to intervene and then maybe one day make it enough to where we die actually saved and make it to heaven, then that is a very short-sighted, pathetic goal. That is not the goal that the Hebrews lived by. They began to live in such a way where they realized that everything they're doing is just another step, another brick in the wall of something that God is building, and they were willing to sacrifice themselves for that purpose. That they, in Hebrews 11, it says, verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 1, after Hebrews 11, of these heroes of faith, all these great men and women that have gone before us, it says they are the cloud of witnesses over our life. In other words, they are watching us. Why? Because they're bored in heaven and they have nothing better to do and we're their, their, you know, in their Netflix program? No, because we are the exercise of their investment. We're the hands and feet of their sacrifices gone before us and they're watching us to see what we do with what they were. We are their brothers and sisters in the same family working for the same company and they want to see how we're monitoring and establishing the kingdom that they died for. Why? Because they realize that the church is more than their individual life. It's the collective sum of the glory of God with nation upon nation, generation upon generation, built for the glory of the kingdom of heaven. Us doing our part as equally as they did theirs. And if Jesus tarries, us leaving that baton in somebody else's lap and speak to people we've discipled so deeply that the, that the gospel doesn't take a dip in effectiveness, it actually takes an increase. And over the last 50 to 60 years, the church of Jesus Christ has taken a dip after dip after dip after dip because we have been very good at evangelizing people, but we have been very terrible at discipling them. We're making lots of babies, but we're not fathering any of them. Because it takes investment to do that. You cannot disciple multitudes. You don't have enough you to go around. Jesus, who was the greatest, only chose 12. Why? Because it takes a lot to disciple 12 people. Praise God, we have John 14, 12. It says, greater works you shall do. You know what we think that is? Healing the sick and raising the dead and all these other things. No, I think it has to do with the works of God, which is building the kingdom of God, which is discipling souls. In other words, if he did 12, we can do 24. Why? Because he gave us his spirit. You with me? Yes. You, know how, you know how hard it is to actually disciple somebody? How, how irritating they can be sometimes? Anybody's ever raised kids? There's, it's not always fun. That's what it takes to spiritually disciple people. And they're constantly in your business, and they're constantly not doing what they're supposed to do, and they're constantly running off, and they're constantly off in their head. And you're looking at them going, I just preached this last week. Were you not here? I saw you in the pew. Did you not open your ears at all? But you have to like, it's okay. You're going to make it.
Everybody believes that their problem is bigger than the solution. When you get under it, and you're under it, and you're under it, I mean, you're really under it. You come and you're like, oh, it's so bad and this, and I can't do this anymore. What you're really saying is, is that my problem is bigger than the God that I serve, and there's no, there's no answer. All that is, you know what that is? That's the manifestation of self-pity. That's all it is. That's another reason why people get offended. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 17. I want to read a couple things before I run out of time. I just want to start in the beginning where God began to show forth his intent. So we're going to start in verse 4. And... Um, I'm going to read a few verses here. And this is God speaking in verse 4. He says, As for me, my, behold, look, look at my covenant is with you, and you'll be the father of many nations. It's interesting to me that we know that, the, that Abraham essentially was the father of modern Israel, but also the promise of God to Abraham it wasn't, it wasn't just to Israel. He said you would be the father of nations. Right? Not just your four no more, but beyond that. Right? So we can look at that in the establishment of understanding the principles of God, that yes, you are supposed to rear your family, your actual familial bloodline in the gospel. But the intent of God is it for it to go beyond that. That you're not just supposed to take care of what God has given you, you're supposed to expand. Okay? So he says, neither uh, shall thy name anymore be called Abram. I'm sorry, I copied King James here. I'll just go with it. Um, but your name will be Abraham, for you'll be father of many nations that I've, uh, that I've made you. He says, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between you and me and your seed after you in their generation for an everlasting covenant. You see that? He says, I'm going to establish my covenant in your seed. This, this, it, what it means is, is that the, the promises of God go beyond your life. And they go beyond your children. And if we are as jealous for the promises of God for somebody who isn't our blood, then we're not truly operating in the heart of Father. He says, my covenant's going to be in your seed. In other words, what you procreate, I want it to be in such a way that it reflects my covenant with you. I want my covenant not just to be with you, I want it to go on and on and on and on. Does this make sense? Yes. So Christianity is not an individual belief. It's a corporate reality. He says, I'm going to give to you and your seed and your seed after you land which, in which you're a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I'll be your God and their God. I will be their God. See, God's seeing way beyond Abraham's life. But you know what? God wants... Abraham wants God in his life. When you want God for something more that's beyond you than for you, then you begin to understand the heart of the Father. But if your entire Christianity is summed up in about perfecting your morality and your, your family and your home and your this and your that and my this and my that, then you're missing, you're missing the point, which would become an introverted, selfish-type Christianity that basically gets to leave whenever it wants because it's not connected to anything other than its own opinion. 
He says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man, child among you shall be circumcised. And the circumcision, uh, you'll circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it'll be a token of the covenant between you and me. And that whoever's eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man, uh, child in your generations, he that's born in your house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of your seed. In other words, my covenant will be with everybody around you, family, slaves. I'm going to establish my covenant with everybody in your household, whether they're of your blood or not. Okay. Verse 13, he that is born in your house and he that is bought with money must be circumcised. Listen to this. And my covenant will be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. In other words, we are supposed to bear in our flesh the covenant of God. Why was, it, why was the circumcision the, the sign of the covenant? Because the circumcision indicates a, a removal of, of the flesh so that there can be pure procreation. That what you begat serves the covenant. That what you birth enters the lineage of God's intention. That what you produce becomes a part of his ways. Not just his acts, which is usually just about your life. Are you following me? Some of you are looking at me funny, so... All right. The intention is that the faith that Abraham demonstrated was, was to be passed from generation to generation. Right? That in our bodies we bear the flesh of the covenant of faith. All right, turn to Genesis 22. How does God go about getting that covenant to actually come to pass? See, when, he, when we walk with him in an individual sense, he has to, he has to ready us for a corporate expression. How many of you know you have to prepare children to be part of a greater whole? You prepare children to be part of a greater society. You prepare children to be part of something greater than themselves. Many of us, you know, we want our children to be good, productive citizens in, in society. We don't want them to be deadbeats and, and lazy bums, and we want them to be hard workers full of character and full of godliness and morality. Amen? Amen. God has the same intention for us. Not just in the flesh, but in the spirit. We be solid, godly people with never forgetting the intention of a father in the beginning of the covenant. But this is not about God fixing your marriage. It's way beyond that. It's way beyond that. That may be one act he's going to do for you in order to show his principal ways, but we have to keep our eyes on the principles of what he's trying to establish so that way we can begin to un undergo and endure the trials that we're praying to, to be released from. So he promised Abraham, your children will be enslaved for 430 years. Isn't it interesting to, to me, it's interesting to me this, this is how I think. that the children had to undergo persecution for a word they never heard. For a covenant they never saw. Wow. 
you're going to have to undergo certain things. That you're not going to know why you're undergoing them, but because God spoke to someone else. See, this is the part where I may lose a few people, but I'm going to bring it back to the family element and it always makes sense. When you're in charge of your own destiny, you can maneuver your pain and trials however you want. If it gets too difficult, you leave. But let's just say you enter a marriage, especially from a feminine sense because we're the bride of Christ, right? From the feminine sense, biblically, let's say your husband leads you in a way that you're not comfortable with. I'm sure every woman's been there. And because of the decision the husband makes, the wife suffers. Maybe the right decision. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean it's the wrong decision. But someone's suffering because of a word that they didn't hear. Why does God do that? To test whether or not you and I are able to merge into the corporate whole. Because see, Jesus thinks and sees us as one. Which means it takes trust to believe a word that you didn't receive. And the only way you're going to trust a word you didn't receive is by establishing relationship with the person who received the word. So the word is always based upon relationship. This is why Jesus came in the flesh. So we could have relationship with Jesus. Because when we have a relationship with him, we are more willing to receive his word. The less relationship we have with him, the less willing we're able to receive his word. True or not? The less relationship we have with one another, the less, more, the less likely we are to receive a word from one another. I have people who feel like it's their business to go around this town and and correct every pastor in, in every pulpit. That's their ministry, to go around and rebuke every pastor and they have, all the, they have all these credentials and blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, if you don't suffer with me, then you don't get the right to rebuke me. Nowhere in the Bible will you see that that is a ministry given to anyone. And when you read a few snippets of misused context in Titus and Timothy about rebuking one another, it was for that specific church, not cross-pollinating, rebuking somebody else in a body you're not connected with. It was for that specific church, and it was given to the pastors of the church, which Titus and Timothy are pastoral epistles. But they see that word rebuke them sharply, and they think, oh my God, I've I've received my ministry. If you're not going to suffer with people, then don't rebuke or chasten them. So it takes relationship to be able to, to believe a word that you didn't receive. <laughs> say, that, say the husband comes in and says, God spoke to me and we need to do this. And we're just like, oh my God, no, that's just crazy. I don't, I don't, know, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. You with me? But you will because of the relationship you have with your husband. Or you should. Because it's not about right or wrong at that point. And if you make it about right or wrong, you're the immature one. Because God, doesn't, he's not concerned with who's right and who's wrong. He's concerned about who's going to show faith. 
Who's going to trust? You have to have a very dangerous scenario in order to have great faith. Okay. That's, I feel like this is better than your response, but that's okay. I'll keep going. I want you to um, turn to, let me see this here. Where are we going to go next? Matthew chapter 11. See, there are times when we follow the Father that he causes us to obey something that causes us great pain. He'll release a word into our life, and we're supposed to trust it. And then there's times as spiritual fathers and even physical fathers and mothers that we put something on our children from what we know to be the word of God in their life, and they have to undergo it, and they are the ones suffering for it. True or not? Right? Because following the word of God is not always easy. But it takes, the, the deeper the relationship, the deeper the trust. And the deeper the relationship, the more willing people are to lay down their life, even for a word of God that they didn't receive on their own. This is why it says that we should believe the prophets. That's why we should believe certain things in Scripture and listen to the apostles. It says the first church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because it was a word from God that was given to men as received as the word of the Lord. They believed the word that came from someone else. They didn't hear it themselves. They believed on the word of someone else. You with me? And that word caused them great, great persecution. When Paul came to Thessalonica and he preached there and all of a sudden he leaves and they undergo great persecution, they believed upon his word. I have a word from the Lord. They believed it. And then all of a sudden they receive, these, this church receives the persecution for the word that they had never received originally from God. Let me say it this way as I'm going to hone this in here. Especially, this is for this community here, this church. If you're part of our church, if you've made covenant with us, this is for you. For the rest of you guys, it's for you, but maybe for where God is taking you, leading you here, somewhere else. I don't know. There's going to be times in any church that you finally plant seeds in and you sow yourself, your life into, where the fathers of the faith in the church are going to hear something from the Lord, and it's going to require sacrifice from people who didn't hear the word. The goal before that happens is to create a strong enough relationship that when the word comes that everybody trusts the character and the fathers of the faith so much that they say, well, this is the word of the Lord. If that relationship isn't established, then the word of God's never going to be advanced. I'm going to show you biblically what I'm talking about here in a minute so you don't think I'm off in left field. But there's times when, when, when following a father or a spiritual father that will be led to sacrifice for a word that we never received. Did I tell you to go to Matthew 11? I'm sorry. Go to Genesis 22, and then we'll go to Matthew 11. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to try to hurry here. It says, It came to pass after these things that God tempted Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said to him, Behold, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering upon the mountains that I will tell you of. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went to the place which God told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes 
and saw the place far off. And he said to the young man, stay here for a while with the donkey and I and the lad will go up and worship and we will come back to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and they both went together. And as they were climbing, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father and said, father, he said, I'm here, son. And he said, we have fire and we have wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And so they went together and they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood on the altar and bound his son Isaac and laid him upon the altar of wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took his knife to slay his son. I want to draw some distinctions from this text here. One, Abraham was over 100 years old. Isaac was probably in his 20s to 30s. The last time I checked, the average 30-year-old can easily take a man who's over 100. Everybody thinks that Isaac was like this little six-year-old boy. He was not. It's interesting when you're following a spiritual father and then you realize along the journey somewhere along the way you're the sacrifice. <laughs> See, I, I, what I'm trying to say is Abraham didn't grab Isaac and wrestle him and hold him down on time down on the altar. It wouldn't happen. It's physically impossible. But the relationship between the two was so deep that Isaac was willing to die for a word he never heard. power of community and the power of the covenant of God in one man intended to be from generation to generation. See, God promised that he would put his covenant in the seed of Abraham, which means that covenant was resting in the heart of Isaac, and which that's, that's the covenant that caused him to crawl upon that altar and say, we're in this together. See, when a church begins to grow and God begins to do things, there's going to be sacrifices that have to be made to be able to advance the kingdom of God. Sacrifices that people have to make for words they never heard. Time, money, finances, vacations, investments, things that wear on you, price, difficulty on you, trial, suffering, hardship, lots of reasons to be offended. Lots of reasons to stop and think, you know, I've served this church faithfully for so long and I've never gotten anything out of it. Nobody ever appreciates me. Nobody ever does this for me. Nobody ever. And God does these things to test your character and your heart. You can turn to Matthew 11 now. See, Isaac knew nothing of what God told Abraham, but he was willing to get on the altar. But both had to be willing for God to offend their expectations. See, God offended Isaac and Abraham's expectations. But what caused Abraham to be a man of faith is he saw beyond the sacrifice into the nature and the ways of God. If you and I can see beyond our sacrifice and beyond our difficulty and beyond our individuality and beyond our trial, we're going to see the intention 
of God Almighty. We're going to see his ways. Therefore, we can trust the acts. Sometimes the acts are great and they're awesome. They're powerful. They're Red Sea parting moments where God moves so deeply and greatly. And we're like, wow, we have an awesome father. And then there's other times where the acts are, we are but the sacrifice and we're laying there going, this isn't fair. They shouldn't have treated me like that. They shouldn't have said that. She shouldn't have said that to me. Well, guess what? You're right, but you're also wrong. Because if it happened, it becomes the will of God. And the Bible says, give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. Even if they hurt me, give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. What's the will of God in my life? People come to me, what's the will of God for my life? What's happening right now? This, this, this. Well, that's the will of God. But what am I supposed to do? Be like Jesus in the midst of all that. But I can. Well, then you found your direction. Get on your face and ask him to make make you like him. It's real simple. But I want him to fix it. He will by fixing you. See, prayer, if prayer doesn't change you, you didn't pray, you just complained. You can put in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of it, but all you did was complain to God, which, I mean, he'll listen to it. Don't expect him to respond to it. David spends a lot of time complaining through most of his psalms, but then every time, just about every time in the psalms where he's complaining, you'll see somewhere through it, he just turns, whoop, and the whole psalm turns, and he starts rejoicing and praising God. It's like this guy's, he's a schizophrenic. No, in his complaining, he realizes what he's doing, and he turns his attention back to Abba, and that's what we're supposed to do, because prayer changes him. Somewhere in the middle of it, he realizes, what am I doing? I have to see his goodness, and I have to see his grace. Right? So there's times where God's going to test your personal walk by allowing you to be a sacrifice for someone else's journey and someone else's word. And the depth of the relationship determines the depth of the sacrifice. If you've invested little, you're going to trust little. So community is opportunity to lose yourself for another. And the very heartbeat of family is a unity in which the individual's love for one another will sacrifice itself for the greater whole. Greater love has no man than this. He lays down his life for his friends. Sometimes the sacrifice of our faith is seen as some other, some other people. You know, I, I've heard a missionary talk one day where he entered this village that had never heard the gospel of Jesus, and he began to preach. And as he began to preach, the crowd began to gather, and then as the crowd began to gather, some antagonists began to gather, and then after a minute, they, they got more bold in, in, their, in their antagonism, and they began to pick up rocks. Well, one of them threw this really large rock and hit this eight-year-old girl in the head right on the front area, cracked her head open and killed her. See, it's hard when your gospel costs somebody else something. Isn't it? It's hard when you're following Jesus and it's hard on your wife, or it's hard when you're following Jesus and it's hard on your husband. It's hard when you're following Jesus and it's hard on your kids. It's hard when you're following Jesus and it's hard on your community. What you're banking on is that I hope they love me enough to walk with me through this and not leave before it gets better. 
Sometimes God will allow you to suffer underneath someone else's vision. The level of offense that you demonstrate in that moment shows the depth of, of your ability to suffer for someone else's ministry. And if you're not going to suffer for someone else's ministry, don't ever expect anybody to suffer for yours. See, when the church's vision costs you your time, your money, your father's vision costs you your life, are we willing to pay it? Many won't. They're just going to develop a theology to justify why they don't have to so they can appease their conscience. Turn to Matthew 11 if you've got your fingers still there. It came to pass when Jesus made an end of his commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to preach the gospel into their cities. And now when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. So think of it now. He hears all these things that are happening. John's in prison. He's given his entire life to Jesus. He's given his entire life to the gospel. He's given his time. I mean, this guy, you can't get any more extreme than John the Baptist. There was no side issues with this man. He had no attachments to the world, no love, no side issues, nothing to cause him distraction. There were no uh, seeds in his life sown among thorns and cares of the life. and None of that. He was completely devoted to the coming of Messiah Jesus, to an extreme event to they, such that they threw him in prison. He's called by the work of God. You with me? He's got a ministry. You with me? He's got purpose. See, how many of you would like to be in his position where you have a ministry, a purpose, a call from God, a revelation, even a crowd, a following, disciples. And then all of a sudden, it's all taken away from you. The very reason why you live has now been ripped out of your life. The very reason why you were born, you can no longer accomplish. You have now zero purpose. You know how many people follow God just because of purpose alone and not because of love? Ministry gives people purpose, and if they lose their ministry, you know how many people fall away from God when they lose their ministry? I've seen it happen. I've seen pastors who fall away from the Lord or lose their, their church and then fall away from the Lord. Because their purpose wasn't in the, the ways of God. Their purpose was in performing his acts. See, John lost his purpose. And he's stuck in prison, and Jesus doesn't even fulfill his own word. You realize that Jesus said in Matthew 25 that, you know, visit those who are in prison? And he never came to see John one time. You know how easy it is for John to label Jesus as a hypocrite right then and there? You don't even keep your own word. It doesn't matter how holy you are. It doesn't matter how right you are. The devil will always be able to accuse you of hypocrisy. <laughs> he says, I don't even try anymore. If people don't stick around me long enough to get to know me and they just want to accuse from a distance, let them throw stones. I don't have time to fight every barking dog along my trail. So when John heard all these wonderful works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Think about it. I mean, he's missing the show. All these healings and dead raisings and signs and wonders and miracles. And he's literally trapped in a prison and can't get out. And he can't see any of it. In other words, God offended John and put him in a place 
that was difficult for him to be in, suffering for someone else's ministry, for a word he didn't receive. And Jesus said to him, go show John the things that you do see and hear. In other words, he, 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 go tell him what he'd already heard. Because see, John, it says when he heard the works that Jesus was doing, and so he sent two people. Well, then Jesus sends them back and says, tell them what I'm doing. He's like, I, what you're doing is why I sent the two guys. I sent them because of what you're doing, and you send them back just telling me what you're doing. Why? Because when God speaks to you the things concerning your life, and you forget about it when you're thrown in prison, he's going to send just a reminder when you're hoping he's going to send liberation. And we don't want the reminder. We want the liberation. See, John wanted Jesus to come set him free. And Jesus just reminded him of his purpose. And there's going to be times where you're going to want to be set free from certain relationships and certain situations and circumstances with one another and your spouses, and you're going to want liberation, and God's just going to send you a reminder. And you're going to be offended because he didn't deliver you, because he didn't fix your problem. You're asking for an act, and he's trying desperately to get you to see his ways. That's what the Bible says, is that the children of Israel knew the acts of God, but Moses knew his ways. And Jesus answered and said, Go show John these things, verse 4, which you do see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In verse 6, blessed is he who is not offended in how I operate. What if God treats you like John? Is about you not having purpose or is it about you accomplishing his purpose even if it means that purpose being that you have no purpose? That you can lay down and die for another man's vision. See, if, if we view our lives as an individual piece, then, then it's the, the whole in itself is going to be deprived. Right? And we're going to be offended when God sacrifices our individual peace for the betterment of the whole. I said this at, thir- at home group on Thursday. It's something that you guys know Chico. He was here a little while back. But he said something years and years and years ago that just really stuck with me. And it's, if, when I think of him, this, this phrase goes through my mind because it's just, it, it hit me so deeply. And I, and I knew it to, to be a truth, but he just said it so simply and it just hammered my heart. And he said, you are expendable. And I was like, man, that's so true. And we, we think we're not. We're, we, we think that our prayer life and our relationship with Jesus, he's going to like work such a work that he's going to make us last for forever, you know? No. No, see, if Jesus tarries, you die, somebody else takes your place. And when you realize that you're expendable, you also realize that the power that you have is at your ability to be expendable. In other words, if you give your life up, you keep it. You live beyond you. You imprint yourself into somebody's life so deeply that they can never be free from you. 
even though you're no longer present. Because you've discipled them. You have birthed the covenant of Abraham into their life. You've discipled them. You've become a father. You've sacrificed together. You've bled together. And then when you leave, they carry that into somebody else, into somebody else. And then after generations of Jesus tarrying, people are going to come up to you one day that you don't even know, but you know that they're your spiritual sons. And they look at you as a spiritual father in heaven and say, thank you for investing in that man because he invested in this man. And that man invested in this man. And that man invested in this man and that's why I'm here because everybody will be able to take their DNA and their genealogy all the way back through the line and somewhere you're going to be in somebody else's chain because your life is not about you your spiritual journey is not about you it's not about your marriage getting better or worse or your finances getting better or worse it's about your ability to sacrifice yourself for something greater than your own opinion Blessed are those who are not offended in me. Blessed are those who are not offended by how I treat them in the grand scheme of the gospel. See, when, when God's ways clash with our expectations, there's always going to be something that doesn't survive. I'm going to read you just a couple of verses and then we're going to close. First Thessalonians 2.11, Paul says, As you know how we've exhorted you and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. Paul's telling the Thessalonians, he's like, look, I've tried to have a father relationship with you. I've poured my life into you. I've spiritually birthed you. My, my, I'm jealous for you, right? And he says, he says, I'm jealous that you would walk worthy of God who called you into his kingdom and his glory. Here's, check this verse 13, so powerful. For this cause I thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you received it not as merely the words of men, but as it is in truth, you received it as the very words of God, which effectually works in you that believe. In other words, Paul's telling them that when I showed up and as I was speaking to you, you did not consider it to be a word from man. You considered everything from my mouth being the word of God. And do you realize he probably wasn't quoting Torah? Because when we are right with the Lord and we're fathering children and by the Holy Spirit we speak under the influence of the anointing, what we're saying is just as much the word of God as Torah itself. I'm not saying everything that's said behind the pulpit's that way, but there are things that when it comes forth, it is from the Lord. John chapter 17, verse 20, he says, Neither do I pray for these alone. This is Jesus' great prayer in John 17. He says, But I'm praying also for those which will believe upon me through my disciples' word. Yes. Yes. Not his word. What does he say? Whose word? See, God believes in his word in your mouth. Yes. But his word in your mouth is to establish the covenant of Abraham. Not to alleviate people from their spiritual psycho burdens, but to create a people who will sacrifice so deeply for one another that they will be the sacrifices for someone else's vision. Thessalonica sacrificed itself for the vision of Paul. And he underwent many trials. 
In John 4, verse 39, it says, The Samaritans, it's Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. <clears throat> she leaves her water pot, goes back into the city, tells them everything he said to her. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he's told me everything that I did. They believed the word of God in the mouth of someone else. A word they did not hear. You with me? Yes. I'm just trying to show you biblical examples so you don't think I'm a heretic, that there are times where God's going to require you to believe something you didn't hear. And then when you believe it, what will happen is, is that it will so minister to your heart and God will so speak that to you personally that finally you'll hear it as well. It will be so confirmed in you when you see and meet Jesus because the word, when you meet the word, it becomes true in life in you. It says, verse, verse 40, it says, So when the Samaritans came to him, they besought him that he, they, he would stay with them. And he stayed two days. And verse 41, And many more believed because of Jesus' word. And verse 42, And he said to the woman, Now we believe not because of your saying only, but we have heard it for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed Christ Messiah, the Savior of the world. The goal of the word of God from generation to generation is that the fathers bring the word of God and the sons embrace it so dearly that they end up hearing the same thing for themselves. And then when they hear that, somebody else in their posterity is going to have to believe and sacrifice for that word that they didn't hear. And then when they do that, then it's going to be spoken to them personally and then it carries on and on and on. But it takes faith before you can receive that word. We are saved by grace through faith. The word has no power in us unless we believe it. If a word of God comes through somebody else's mouth that you have a problem with, guess what? You're not going to believe that word because not because you have a not because you don't like the word, it's because you don't like the person. Because you haven't been relational enough to get past your selfishness to see the beauty in somebody else because all you can see is the wrong. There will be wrong in every person you hear that speaks from the Lord. God makes it that way to test you and offend you to see whether you're going to listen to him or what you see that's wrong. Which tree are you going to eat from? The knowledge of good and evil, the ones able to, to discern what's right and wrong. That's not discernment. That's a gift that all Adamic nature has. People think, well, I've got the gift of discernment. No, you've got the, you've got the gift of suspicion. Or when somebody does screw up a little bit, oh, I see, I told you, I knew it. Well, congratulations that you know nothing more than what the demon knew. Such a great prophet you are. <laughs> Prophets always bring restoration. Go read them. I don't care how much judgment they preach on in the Old Testament, every one of them, every single one of them turned toward the end of their life and began to prophesy restoration. If you can't bring restoration... And all you can bring is what's wrong. You're not a prophet. I had years ago, this lady exit this building right here, walk out of that door, looked at me in the eye and said, there's nothing but dry bones here. And I looked at her by the spirit. Didn't even think of it. It just came out of me. I said, if you can't, if all you can see is dry bones and you can't see the army, then you're not a prophet. Of course, she was speechless. What are you going to say to that? I don't know what you would say to that, but it wasn't me that said it. So, We've got to develop relationships so deep that when it comes time for sacrifice that we know that a father's voice is what we hear in harmony with what the father in heaven has said. 
just the same way that children have to trust their fathers and mothers and, and mothers have to trust their husbands and, and people have to trust spiritual authority. There's, there's going to be, when you establish a relationship that is very deep, then you can sacrifice yourself for a word you do not receive. This is the thought process that most church people don't want to hear because they value individuality and personal relationship over the corporate whole. In other words, their personal relation, revelation of Jesus, supersedes the corporate value. And they demand that the corporate value bow to their revelation. Whenever their revelation is only given to strengthen the corporate value. The modern churches have made a religion out of escaping tribulation. Jesus created his family by embracing the tribulation that everybody else ran from. See, God needs people to thrive in the wilderness because everybody else wants to run from it. All the rest of Christianity wants to create a, a, an idea of God that basically alleviates you from the wilderness, and God wants to create people who can worship there. Go read a why. Go read. Go read the why of what he told Moses. Why he wanted his people free. Let my people go so they can worship in the wilderness. Do you know how to worship in the wilderness? Or are you just praying for God to release you from it? Amen? We need relationships so deep that trust can actually be born. Not based upon people's actions. Because that's always going to be flawed. But based on love, which is able to cover a multitude of actions. <laughs> you with me? Yes. You will be offended. God will, God will allow something to happen in your life to bring offense to you. How you respond in that prison moment is, is the revelation of your personal character. And your personal character, frankly, means more than your personal revelation. Because I don't care what you think you've heard from Jesus. I care how you treat people. Your revelation doesn't impress me. Your character, that'll get my attention. Amen. Stand your feet. I hope I made sense this morning. I felt like I was walking a tightrope the entire time and I didn't want to fall to one side because I know how much we've made an idol out of our personal relationship with, with Jesus and I think they're vitally important. We should have a personal relationship with Jesus 100%. But we have that so that we can be servants to our brothers and sisters in the faith, not so that we can elevate ourselves over them and ask God to change everything for our sake and feel better about ourselves. In fact, I think most of the time, guys, that you'll get through your own journey when you start helping somebody else get through theirs. You want to be free from where you're at? Stop working on it and help somebody else get free from theirs. Why? Because you're sowing good seed. Anytime in the Bible you take care of somebody else's things, God's sure to take care of yours. The Bible says that if you lend to the poor, 
that God is in debt to you. And he will not be in debt to anyone. You lend to your maker when you give to the poor. That just means, doesn't mean just on the sky with a cardboard sign. It means maybe somebody sitting next to you in your church that's busted and broken and bleeding and bruised and there's, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, and you know they're not. And you say, hey, come over to my house and let's just talk for a minute. You don't have to be strong. I'll help you. I'll be strong for you. It's okay. We'll get through this. Father, we thank you for your grace. You brought us into the family of God, which means we're connected all the way back to Abraham. And we're not separate. We're not individuals just wandering around aimlessly, wandering hopelessly. We have purpose and destiny, and the covenant that you gave that man is also ours because he's the father of faith. So, Lord, help us to understand and repent and get out of our own heads and realize that you have called us for something that's greater than just ourselves and that we are essentially, at our best, servants. And that we can be no greater than we're in the posture of washing each other's feet. That's our heart. Not looking at the stuff that we're washing out and all the garbage and stuff that we've picked up along the way, but the fact that we're blessed and honored enough to to be in that position to help one another. So create that in this, in this church, Lord. Create that in this fellowship. And those who aren't a part of this fellowship, if, if you lead them somewhere else, then create that in them wherever they go. That you might be satisfied. We bless you and we honor you, and this can only come by you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you bring this to remembrance, that if we get thrown in some sort of futuristic prison, of emotional darkness or whatever it might be that we'll be reminded that we are expendable and it is the glory of the king to be expended for his purposes. We thank you, Lord, that you'll be with us in that moment because like Paul said, that even when all men forsook me, you stood with me and strengthened me. So be with yours, Father. Let them know intimately and deeply the power of the name Emmanuel, that it exists for forever. We bless you, we bless them, we love you, we honor you. Make these things real and true in our flesh that we bear the covenant of the Lord in our bodies. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.